Welcome to the Internet History Podcast. I'm your host, Brian McCullough. At the dawn of the e-commerce era, if Amazon staked a claim in books and sites like CD Now staked a claim in music, then Real.com should be remembered as the important dot-com era player in movie retail. But more than just going toe-to-toe with Amazon, Real.com actually pioneered online movie rentals as well. Real.com's founder, Stuart Scorman, actually came from the world of video rental stores, and he sold his video chain to Blockbuster. So, the first site to rent you movies via the postal service? Real.com. And more importantly, the site that really pioneered movie matching technology, that sort of art or science of recommending which movie you're really going to want to watch tonight? Real.com. Now, in the course of this project, I've obviously read a lot of entrepreneur or CEO autobiographies. And to be quite honest with you, most of them are just garbage, basically vanity projects. But Stuart Scorman has written a truly exceptional memoir called Confessions of a Serial Entrepreneur, Why I Can't Stop Starting Over. And it's not just an interesting story about an interesting entrepreneur, but the book is actually filled with tons of useful tips and bullet points for Becoming a Successful Entrepreneur. I highly, highly recommend it, and there's a link in the show notes. So today, Stuart Scorman, the founder of Real.com. Stuart Scorman, thanks for coming on the Internet History Podcast. Oh, you're welcome, Brian. So um, I I always like to get a little bit of background uh, before we get into the meat of people's careers, but you, more than almost anyone I've talked to, (laughs) have such a varied career, so many different entrepreneurial stories that we probably don't have time to get into all of them. So I wondered if we could just um, touch on a few uh, early early experiences. For example, um, early on, uh, you managed rock bands. Yes, that was my first uh, kind of career, and it taught me a lot about marketing. And what was the – you, you, you grew up in, in um, Ohio or the Boston area, I think? Um, actually, in Ohio, but I went to, right. I went to college in Boston. Okay, so your, your uh, rock band managing career um, was with uh, the James Montgomery Band? That's right, the original James Montgomery Blues Band. Tell us, tell us about and that band because I, I, I actually had not heard of them. Well, they were, they were kind of the – the big, the big local blues band in New England for quite a few years, and we made we made records with Capricorn Water Brothers and did tours with the Almond Brothers, and so they were kind of a big band in their time. And um, and I was, you know, I'm a fifth generation entrepreneur, and um, you know, and so it was natural for me to when these friends of mine said, "Hey, why don't you help me manage this band?" It was kind of natural for me to to kind of jump into it. Um, and by the way, there, our partner in most of our concerts or many of our concerts was Bonnie Raitt, mm. who, who later became famous. And mm-hmm. it was a little bit like the, Jay, the, like the Jay Giles band, which was also famous. But um, I've always really loved marketing and loved getting audiences really excited, you know, creating a really, a really good customer experience. 
And this band was a great live band. You know, they were just fantastic at making audiences laugh and applaud and dance and all that kind of stuff. And so it was kind of, they were kind of a marketing person's dream in terms of putting on such a good show. And um, I actually learned a lot from James Montgomery himself. Um, and and we, were, we were drawing like 2,000 people in concerts before we made records. So it was a very unusual band, and it was that good of a band live. And so let's just say I learned a lot of really interesting marketing lessons from that experience. Well, yeah, um, you know, there's so much hustle involved in, in promotion and, and things like that in arts that that had to be – it's an unusual entrepreneurial background, but it, it had to be um, amazingly educational in, in things like marketing. Oh, yeah. And marketing, everything about marketing is creating a strong brand, one that gets attention and one that people like. And as they say, this band made it easy because they were such a good live band. And, um, you know, as they say, it taught me, like we were on the cover of the Boston Globe Sunday magazine, and our prices doubled after that. You know, it taught me the value of really good marketing. Um, another early uh, few years that I saw in your book, you spent at um, a a grocery store chain called Bread and Circus, which... Not not a forerunner to Whole Foods, but Whole Foods eventually bought them, right? They were there. There's three companies that formed Whole Foods, and they were all about the same size, and they all invented the, com- the the concept together in different parts of the country. So they merged together, and Bread and Circus was was one of those three companies that um, that became Whole Foods. So, how did you get involved with Bread and Circus, and what were the what were the big lessons that um, your years with Bread and Circus taught you? Well, I've been converted to um, eating healthy foods and organic and all that kind of stuff. And so I wanted to find a company that um, that represented that that value and that excitement that I had, you know, for health and always wanted to help other people, you know, being a socially conscious entrepreneur. And so I found the best chain of natural food stores in New England and uh, partnered with them, basically started to get them store locations, handled their marketing and so on. And eventually became a, a full-time employee and, and later, I mean, a, an executive and later a, um, a board member for nine years. And so I had a lot to do with, let's say, the beginnings of Whole Foods. And um, so I liked helping people. I liked, I, I believed in the cause of being socially conscious and, you know, and helping people be healthy. And I like disrupting. I like doing things where um, I'm going to make a big change and a change for the better in an industry that needs it. And back then, supermarkets were really unhealthy. You know, it's changed a lot because of Whole Foods, and I'm proud of that. And and the and I still see, I still see things inside of Whole Foods where I was maybe the one who originated it. So, so I'm really proud of that. Yeah, sorry to interrupt. What what were the lessons though about? I mean, because that's a that's a physical retail location that's doing that's doing retail the old school way. Uh, what what were the lessons that you learned about? pleasing customers and, and building a customer base and, and, and creating a viable marketplace um, in, a, in a retail environment? Well, there's a, there's a bunch of questions there. <laughs> um, Whole Foods, Bread and Circus, that, that's okay. Bread and Circus, similar to Whole Foods, mm-hmm. they were great merchants. So you walked in there and you had fun. You know, it was like kind of like eye candy, you know, where everything was visually fun and interesting and fun smells and stories about this is where the corn was grown on this organic farm that we've been working with for years. And all that, all that's, it's kind of beyond merchandising. It's marketing, it's brand building. And, um, and then, and then we have to listen to customers because this was something new. 
And one of the things I kind of innovated, it took me a while to convince the owner, but um, we actually offered double your money back if you didn't like any food for any reason. And, um, and of course, that got people to experiment and try, you know, a lot of these new natural foods in these new brands that were very new at that time for, for almost everybody. So in your in your book, you, you describe how it's almost like um, you, it's not that you can't stay in any one place very long, but you sort of you maybe get a little stir crazy, even especially after things are successful. Like you, you always tend to have this tendency to want to move on to the to the next thing. Um, and so the next thing after Bread and Circus, maybe not directly, but eventually um, in the mid 80s, um, you get into the video rental business. How did how did that happen? Just always loved movies and um, went into all these little hole-in-the-wall video stores, and I hated them. I thought they were doing a really bad job with selection and, and um, customer service. In a video store, customer service is what we, we, we called movie matchmaking, which was helping customers not just say, here's a movie, go home, but make sure we get a movie they're really going to like. And, um, and that's part of what made our stores. Our stores were the highest volume and most successful video stores in the country, and I'm, I'm really proud of that. And, uh, of course, we had the biggest selection, which was a big deal. We had like 10,000 videos, which back then was a lot in the video stores. But also we had movie experts in the store all the time there to help the customer find something that they were going to like. You know, everybody has different tastes. And, um, and I studied film in college and, and loved classic movies. And so there, were, there was a lot of passion I had for the business. And then I could see it was a new business where most of the people in it, you know, weren't necessarily, you know, serving the customers very well. You know, I'm I'm interested in this just for a little bit because, again, this is sort of a, this is a uh, an industry that has now uh, gone away. Um, but you said in in your book, I found this fascinating that in the in the early '80s, when when video rentals get started, um, the big money players didn't really get into the video rental game right away because they assumed that video on demand technology was right around the corner, and so for a long time. It was sort of this wide open plane for for mom and pop shops for small chains. That's right. There there were two dangers that everybody perceived. One was that, which of course a real tech, technology people knew was a long time away, and um, but that was a perceived danger. You're absolutely right. And the other one was that the supermarkets and 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 drugstores would take it over, so it wouldn't leave any room for the small guy. And so those are, those were the risks. That's why I started my, my first store in a small town in Vermont was to be able to make sure I was the biggest one in town, you know, and, and that in small towns, local makes a difference, you know, in, in terms of a brand. So that's why, you know, that's why I was mostly doing small towns. And you, you, you but, already you spoke already about um, this, this movie matchmaking thing and, and focusing on this customer's experience, not just open the store doors, let the customer you know, browse around. You're trying to help them go home with a movie they'll enjoy. And the other thing that I found fascinating was there was good economic reason behind that. Like you said that you had the best margins in the business because the way it worked, the way a lot of things work, you know, bookstores also function this way, is that um, the, the the biggest cost to you were the like the new releases, like the, the, the big hits of the time. But if you could convince people or if you could steer people to older movies, to, to back catalog movies, to things like that, like your your margins were better because those were cheaper. 
Well, you're, I know this, you're interviewing me, but um, you're very smart. And, um, and that's, that was the, that was the key to making money was not just new releases, but older movies. And it turned out there were so many good old movies. There was a complete alignment between making profit and making customers happy. And, so, and that was the thing I loved the most about that business was that alignment where good business was also what was perfect for the customer. How, how big did uh, Empire Video get? Was it maybe half a dozen, a dozen stores? It just got, it just got to six stores, but, mm-hmm. but we were the, the highest volume and, and most profitable stores in the country. And I was really proud of the quality of what we did. You also um, you, you try to uh, or Blockbuster comes in early and talks about buying Empire Video from you. It doesn't happen right away, but you spend a few years consulting with them, which is a little close to my heart because my first job in high school was at a Blockbuster. And what I what was close to my heart is that you were trying to improve their stores. <laughs> like so many things about the way you ran your your video store was not the way that I experienced as an employee at Blockbuster, and so. Um, I'm curious about your experience um, at a bigger company trying to get them to improve the way they do business, improve their product, improve their customer experience, and 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 maybe dealing with bureaucracy and things like that. Well, it was very challenging. Um, I like I liked playing a big game so that my movie matchmaking would actually impact you know impact a lot of people, not just a few people, and so that's what attracted me to Blockbuster. And um, it was very challenging. I had one ally there, Scott Beck, who um, who was the COO of the company. You know, and he was a, he was very much into this. We actually did the first version of Real.com together. It was a, a kiosk inside a Blockbuster store. In other words, it was movie matchmaking. Mm-hmm. You know, with technology. You know, and and then we actually did write our own movie reviews. Like our typical movie review would be. Well, if you like slow-moving, you know, dramas, you'll like this. But if you want more action, this isn't for you. In other words, we didn't. Every movie box says, "Rent me, buy me. I'm the you know best movie you've ever seen," and that doesn't help a customer. What helps a customer is somebody more objective, saying, "Here are the people that like it, and here are the people that don't." Right, right now they call that crowdsourcing. Mm-hmm. Well, and because we had go go ahead. Well, I was going to say, I mean, because it seems like that that's your that's your big idea. Like that's the thing that that excited you was this ability to enhance the, like because you, you take a crack at this several times, this idea of movie matchmaking. Um, and so was it was it the, the experience of doing it in these small stores that made you be convinced that that if you you scaled it up, it could work, you know, nationwide, worldwide on, on, a, on a larger scale? That's right. Um, Blockbuster actually trademarked the name Movie Matchmaking. They were so excited about it for a while. And then I was helping them with their store, the Future Projects in Texas, where we were baking in Movie Matchmaking into the process. As I say, we actually got a computer kiosk up and running in, in a couple of their stores to test Movie Matchmaking because they said they grew too fast and they, they were bad at customer training and all these things that I'm sure you know about if you work there. And so they would they they wanted it to be more of a technology thing so that they'd be able to roll it out on a big scale, and um, and so that was fine for me because I like I like movie matchmaking and I like rolling things out on a big scale. And they had a lot more money that I had to be able to do something like that and other and other resources. Let's call it technology. Well, one more. But you got it. That that that's what I love doing: movie matchmaking. You know, natural foods match, matchmaking. Mm. To, help people discover products that they're going to like that are going to make them healthy. 
Um, and, um, and, and, you know, that's what I do. Um, so that's, that's something you'll find in common with almost everything I've done mm-hmm. is you, mm-hmm. you, you could call it movie matchmaking. Well, it's, it's product discovery. It's getting people to that, that, that perfect product and that aha moment, really. Um, that's right. It's, it's, both, it's both discovery and matchmaking, you know, in terms of helping them, you know, really find what's, what's right, you know, for them because people have such different tastes. So, uh, as I mentioned, you do eventually uh, sell Empire Video to, to Blockbuster, and so then again, the <laughs> your your entrepreneurial uh, juices get flowing again. I know that you are you did not have a technical background; um, you weren't a computer science guy or whatever. So, I'm wondering when you first encountered like the web, and the web was starting to take off. Did you did you say to yourself right away, "Oh"? This is this is how this is how I'll finally get my my movie matchmaking idea um, off the ground in a big way. You got it. And I actually um, carried around the first issue of Wired magazine until it wore out. Wore out. You know, I, I loved so much the vision they were painting of the future, and I moved to you know from New England all the way to San Francisco to be part of that. I had a you know a couple friends in the technology industry, and I knew this was the place to be. And so I actually moved here for the reason of starting Real.com. So I'm going to put this in, in context of just uh, for uh, the purposes of, of years and, 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 and telling people when this all happened. So I, I believe you probably moved out there in 94, 95 out to San Francisco? 93. 93, okay. It was a couple of years between that and actually starting Real. Right. So Real.com um, – launches or or starts to get going around 1996 but not having the the technical background um how, what <laughs> on a very literal basis like how do you get the ball rolling is it about finding people that can help you execute on this idea oh yes it's a, it's very much about that and it's very much about the experience i had at blockbuster with the kiosk and learning from their technology people and learning from the kiosk itself what worked and didn't work in terms of customers interacting with the screen. And so, um, and then I, and that taught me how important technology was. And so I worked really hard to find people that were good, which was really hard back then because there were very few people that understood even how to build a website. So it was, uh, even in San Francisco, it was a difficult thing to do. And the technology people that work with me got a lot of stock, let's put it that way. You know, in other words, they did really well because um, I needed them as partners and I knew it. When when you launch, uh, you described that your initial idea for a while was sort of like a mix between an information service. You know, again, you would be providing the matchmaking, um, but then also a store because you – when you launch Real.com, <laughs> you're launching a website, but you actually um, launch a physical store in Berkeley as well. Partially, was it partially to, to, to generate revenue doing something that you already knew worked? Um, no, the physical store, um, um, Amazon's finally getting around to doing it. But, but um, I always thought that a physical store was a great brand builder for an online business. And still do. Interesting. And, and, and in other words, you can, you can come visit us in Berkeley if you want to. And, of course, Berkeley was a cool, hip place. And the store was – by the way, the store in the middle of the store was all computer terminals. So mm-hmm. you, could look up, you could look up all the movies in the store on the computer first before, you know, using our database, of course, you know, real.com, 
before um, you know before you had to decide what to do. So it was really the, this this physical store was actually blending you know the technology world with the physical world, but also from a brand building you know a brand building point of view, it made us unique. So you have the physical store as sort of maybe onboarding people to to the online experience and then in the hopes that they'll then get the habit of the online experience? Well, it was it's more like on online to say we're not just an online business like the rest of them. You can come visit us in Berkeley if you want to. We're real people. What was and, uh, and go Sorry, ahead. go ahead. No, you go ahead. Uh, what was was that a difficult thing? I, I've asked actually several other e-commerce early e-commerce people. Um, that was an issue early on that that you you basically people are a, a little bit skeptical of of the online thing, and so um, getting them comfortable with with online was was a major issue. That's right, and also making our brand stand out from Netflix, which was a small brand back then, you know, to lots of other Amazon. You know, got into video. You know, fairly soon after that, all these other brands. There were there were hundreds of you know, let's say, video stores that, you know claiming their online video stores. So I wanted to stand out as a brand, and I wanted to get attention. And also, you know, we we were the you know we were the first uh, online company to to open up a physical. You know, we were an online company first, then we were the first one to open up a physical store, and so that was newsy. And then the fact that you could trust us, you could just come in and visit us. We're not just online, you know. Um, so it was, it was, you'd call it a brand building thing for lots of ways. So I believe, again, for, for the context that you, you launched the site around January of 97, um, and, and you launched right away with both movies for sale and for rent? Yes, we did. And even though for renting VHS wasn't practical, you know, they broke, they're expensive to mail, they're so big, and DVDs weren't, weren't you know, weren't happening yet. Yeah, that's actually, uh, that's so, something we should point out is that this is right in the transition period from VHS to when DVDs start to really mainstream around 98, 99. That's right. And even then, it was around 2000 before there was enough variety in, in, in DVDs for, for it to mean something. And so what I was doing was I was positioning for DVDs, and I was positioning for a rental business, and um, and also it, it was once again a good brand builder, you know, say hey you can buy movies or or you can just rent them from us by mail, um, and um, you know and so we were really well known for that. Um, uh, Paul Allen, the co-founder of uh, of Microsoft, was a movie buff. He was a fan of our company and later invested in it. But we we just knew him as Paul on the phone. We actually had. 800 customer service number where people could call and ask about movies. And so once again, it's all about service and it's all about movie matchmaking. Uh, what was the breakdown in terms of what was more popular initially, r- rental or sales? Oh, uh, you know, by far sales. Mm-hmm. Um, rentals was a, was a small business. And it was just, I was, they say I was just positioning for when DVDs finally got to the point where it would be practical. And then the, the management that followed me actually got rid of the rental. Um, very famous now, uh, Julie Wainwright. I guess she's, she's always been famous. But, but, but she wanted to focus on the sales, and maybe that was the right thing to do at the time. Mm-hmm. So you, you've mentioned how, um, again, back to the, the movie matchmaking idea, um, eventually you have a, a, a large um, editorial staff, and so you're, you're doing your own um, – movie reviews and, and, and creating sort of the, the, the software to do the matchmaking, right? That's right. We, we didn't actually create the software. It was a company um, 
based out of the, uh, the University of Illinois that had actually was the pioneer of what's called collaborative filtering, which Netflix later made, made famous. But we were the first website to have that. So that was a call that a high tech matchmaking system. And then we also had our own database of, of reviews that, as I say, they were objective and they were they were short and they were geared towards, you know, a customer finding something that they were going to like. And so um, and, and then we actually had the database to some extent, you know, from Empire Video before that. So that uh, I just used all that knowledge and that that information and in building a database. And then what we did was we hired large numbers of local video store clerks. And we found real good ones from really good video stores in the San Francisco area. And they were the ones who actually built the database because they had the knowledge of who, of who likes which movies is the key knowledge. Um, and you mentioned Netflix already, but uh, who, what was the competitive landscape at the time when you launched? There, I think there was another company called VideoServe. Who were you competing with in this space of, of taking movie sales and rentals online? There were a large a large number of of um, of stores um, that were that were in the business, and then um, everybody knew that Amazon was going to get into the business, and we were fortunate to become the big brand. Um, call it luck, call it good marketing. You know, we had like five articles in the New York Times, and you know, we we did a lot of good marketing things that uh, that made us stand out. I actually met with Reed Hastings. We had a kind of a mutual friend and, and we talked about working together, but you know, it just, it didn't make sense. But, um, and so, so we became, we became the big brand and that's, that's why we sold for a hundred million dollars. And, and that's why we got so much attention. And um, I just love creating fun ideas. Like, uh, like one idea was what's our best selling movie at Christmas time. Well, it turned out it was a Blade Runner director's cut. And that's the kind of thing that makes news because, you know, that wasn't the, the most popular movie, but it was online. You see mm -hmm. what I mean? In terms mm -hmm. of the, let's say, the highly educated people um, that wanted to, um, you know, you know that, that, wanted, that tended to use the Internet at that time. I believe you also um, maybe had conversations with uh, Jeff Bezos at, at one point early on about possibly partnering, possibly merging with them before they, before they started to get into the movie business themselves. That's right, and and they they were already doing music, and we knew everybody knew the next was video, you know, after you know because they started with books, and I I spent an afternoon with Jeff in Seattle, and um and we talked about um you know we talked about you know basically him buying our company because he had already IPO'd, and when you're when you're a public company, you have access to a lot of money, and um and we weren't near that point. And so um, we had a whole afternoon together. It was really interesting. And um, the, the, maybe the thing I'm most proud of in terms of those days was a couple of years later. Uh, this is this is after um, you know after the, the the time when he was thinking of buying the company um, that uh, that he that he he actually he actually said that um, that you know we were the toughest competitor he'd had at that point. Call call that 1999. And he had a lot of competitors. You know, there was CD Now, for instance, which mm -hmm. became a public company that was in music. And there were a lot of people starting to try to compete with him in books and so on. You know, there were a lot of competitors, including, you know, a lot of video competitors. And so I take that as a really big compliment because I, I thought of and still think of Jeff as, you know, like, a, you know, about the world's biggest talent. A, a couple of questions specifically about that era, about like the, the what we would call the, the dot-com bubble era. Um, how important 
were things like alliances to, to people like you, like cutting deals with a Yahoo, say, or an AOL in those early days to try to to, to get in front of, of customers and, and to uh, get people starting to buy online? It was crucial. And we had one alliance um, that really boosted us, and uh, it was called IMDB, the Internet Movie Database. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And people today don't know too much about that. But back in those days, it was in the top 10 in terms of traffic on the web. Oh, I think everyone still knows IMDb. <laughs> but go on. Okay, well, and so in any case, um, we were their ally. And then Jeff Bezos, I think, thought we were a threat. So he bought IMDb. We couldn't afford it. We hadn't IPO'd yet. And so he actually bought IMDb, I'm pretty sure, as a way to, to you know, potentially you know have us not be a big competitor versus versus him in the movie business i wonder if you could also yeah, tell no, he's, he's never told me that that's that that's just my theory right um i wonder if you could tell me also the story or tell us also the story of the the titanic promotion because this is something <laughs> that i feel like went on a lot in the dot-com era but when, when when titanic the movie comes to home video um what do you guys do well, um, first of all, I got to give Julie Wainwright credit for that idea, um, even though I was I was kind of a big part of it, and um, and we'd actually already made an agreement with Hollywood Video to sell the company for a hundred million dollars before that. So even though the company became more famous because of it, it didn't really affect the underlying business of what we were doing. But uh, yeah, that was a common thing back then was to was to give product away to be able to get attention. And then there was so much financing, you know, going into the Internet that people could afford to do that. But you're right. A lot of that happened. So but you, you're, you're selling you're you're selling them for nine ninety nine, but it's costing you seventeen dollars wholesale. So it's 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 one of those great dot com era stories where you're, you're so many people were willing to lose money just to just to get their name out there. That's right, and to get attention, and to um, and then to get customers, because once you buy Titanic, well, then maybe you're going to buy Blade Runner or you know different kinds of things, and then but but the amount of press that that generated was huge, which is just very valuable, of course, at any time for any business. You um, so you've mentioned Julie Wainwright, um, who comes on as CEO in uh, I think it's around April of, of ninety eight. Um, That's right. Yeah, it's it's somewhat rare for uh, a founder to acknowledge and, and be upfront with everyone and say, I think that um, someone else th- that could be better at this than me should come in and be CEO. Um, h- how did you know that? Well, um, the company was growing really fast. And, um, and I tend to be a sprinter in terms of, um, you know, I have a, a creative period that lasts maybe a very few years. And then after that, I'm not as, um, you know, I'm just not as valuable. And when I have a, when I have a company, I think a lot of entrepreneurs are like this. It's like my baby. It's like something that I, I care about so much that if I'm not the best CEO or the best manager, then it's obvious to me that I should replace myself with somebody who's going to be better. And Julie had had experience with in larger companies. She, you know, worked for, for years with Clorox and on and on. And so, um, basically, um, you know, I, I, I thought she would be a better manager than, than I was going to be. And I thought that the company needed that. It was just, just that simple. It's like, if you have a kid, 
you're, you're going to want them to, to you know, you're going to, if you're not, as a parent, if you're not a good teacher of something, you're going to want to take that kid to a good teacher. It, you know, it's, it's very similar to something like that where it was my baby and I cared about it. And I've always been like that. I've always been like, I'll be the CEO for as long as it takes. And then when the company, you know, outgrows that, then, um, then it needs somebody, be, you know, better than me in terms of being a manager. So as we've said, eventually um, it, it, the Real.com is sold to Hollywood Video, which, again, for people that might not know, is a, uh, a, a large chain like Blockbuster. Um, why did you uh, sell as opposed to doing an IPO? Because this is, you know, right again in the middle of the dot-com com madness. Yes. Um, I, I, was, I believed that there was going to be a really big crash. And that, um, and that a lot of these companies that are IPOing were going to um, do a very big disservice to their investors and their employees and all of the stakeholders that would benefit from an IPO or not. You know, meaning if the IPO failed, and eventually then they, everybody would get nothing. And so I, I was very concerned about that. And so when we, when the board wanted to IPO the company, um, I, I kind of vetoed it because I thought I didn't, I didn't think it was going to work out. And wisdom of hindsight, it wouldn't, by the way, you know, companies like CD now, I IPO'd and mm -hmm. later crashed so much that everybody lost all their money, literally. And I didn't want that to happen. And, um, and I'd been a part of booms and busts, you know, unlike a lot of the younger people that were running the companies back then. I remember a business 2.0 dinner that I was at where there was a lot of the younger entrepreneurs and then, uh, and there was a question asked, is there going to be some crash or are these stocks going to keep going through the roof? And there were only two people in the room that thought there was going to be a crash. And we were two of the more experienced people. And it was me and it was the other person was actually Meg Whitman. Mm. And so the younger people just didn't have the experience to know that what was going on just wasn't real, you know, like, like, like real, like real, not, not like real.com, but with an, <laughs> with an A. Right. And, and the, um, you know, things like the Titanic promotions and those kind of things that it just wasn't sustainable as you were kind of pointing out. Well, I, you, it was good timing, I suppose, to get out then. Um, but I, I, I wondered if you could just briefly go into the, the hungry com story, because again, I feel like that that's such an interesting entrepreneurial lesson because it's another dot com that you take a run at right as the bubble's bursting and um it's ultimately not successful but i'm wondering what the the entrepreneurial lesson was there at at maybe trying to take another run at it uh, after having great success well timing is everything is the long is the long story short and hungry minds was uh was called that education matchmaking where mm -hmm. we were going to mm -hmm. be helping people find the right online classes for them and there were a lot of interesting things that happened. Like, I think we were basically the first customer for this little tiny startup called Google. Mm -hmm. And they and they were essentially our search engine on the website. And um, and I was coming from idealism. I'd come, come from the place where I just made X amount of millions of dollars. And I wanted to give some of it back in a way that would help people. And then the, the education system, you know, was so screwed up. And the online version of all that was going to become so much more efficient in terms of helping kids that are poor or whatever. And so it was coming from an idealism but it wasn't coming from, from what I call good business sense because the idea is great, you know, an education, online education portal, but it was like five or seven years too early. And, and in other words, there weren't enough 
classes and mm-hmm. things like that that were really developed, you know, at a at a level that people would would want for for it to be sustainable at that point. And so the and so the big lesson I learned there. And by the way, I was try I knew there was going to be a crash, and so I was just putting some of my my money back into it. You know, not all of it. And I was hoping to to get in first before the crash, and raise enough money to make this sustainable. And then I could. By the way, I got out before the crash finally happened, but I could see it was starting to happen, and it was. I I, see, I could see I was too late. So that's a, that's another timing thing. Is you know you have to have the right timing in terms of financing. Mm-hmm. Well, and um, as I've said, you know we could go on listing all of the the different uh, entrepreneurial. Um, things that you know, there, there's elephant pharmacy. Um, so again, uh, maybe learning from from your experience with um, bread and circus and trying to take that into a uh, to a pharmacy model and things like that. I'm curious. Uh, a final couple questions here: um, Is entrepreneurialism sort of a, an addiction that you ever lose? <laughs> Not me. <laughs> so I, 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 you know, addiction is one way to call it. Uh, uh, passion. Um, and then, and then a passion for, for disrupting or, or revolutionizing things. Um, elephant pharmacy was called that, uh, the, um, pharmacies, you know, that were like whole foods, you know, but they, but they, but it combined prescriptions and herbs and everything together. And one thing I'm proud of about that is that CVS, uh, the big pharmacy chain bought the company. And I think, I think we had something to do with the fact that they were the first pharmacy chain to give up tobacco. Mm. Which, which, when you think of a pharmacy selling tobacco, the mm-hmm. worst thing in the world—it's it's crazy. You know, they're they're part of our healthcare system, mm-hmm. and so, so once again, it's a passion for for um, you know for doing creative new things. It's a passion for uh, doing socially good things. Um, it's a passion for disrupting. You know, d- you know, which means new things that are innovative. And um, and so it was combining all that together. And you're right, the elephant pharmacy kind of made made use of a lot of my DNA from from the earlier days at Whole Foods. A couple questions about how the landscape and and the various uh, industries and niches that you um, have participated in how they've evolved today. Um, when you when you look at Netflix, for example, well, first of all. Did you envision a day? Did you feel like in the late '90s that the day was coming soon when um, we wouldn't be physically renting, you know, little discs that 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 video would be delivered uh, digitally and, and online? Yes, a lot of people envisioned that. Even the founders of Blockbuster sold out in '93, you know, anticipating that. When you and so go ahead. Oh, I, I'm sorry. Continue. No, no. I'm sorry. You go ahead. When you when you look at at um, Netflix essentially having succeeded in that, is that just another timing thing? Like they just happened to to hold on long enough till till it became viable. Well, um, yeah, you know, um, Reed Hastings had had a, a lot of success in the technology world before that, so he was let's say well financed, and um, and so he you know he could kind of be in it for the long term in that way. And um, and so the vision of of mail order DVDs, um, you know, everybody knew that was going to happen to some extent or mostly. And then everybody knew eventually streaming was going to happen. No one knew exactly when. But, you know, as they say, the smart techies knew it was not going to happen soon. And so Reed, you know, um, he did one thing that was really unique, and that is that he got he got rid of late fees by starting this uh, subscription model. 
And so I think it was that combined with his technology skills, combined with what obviously you can see now are great marketing skills. I think the combination of, of all three of those things is what made him really successful. As, as someone that obviously had this passion for movie matchmaking, I'm curious, what do you, what do you personally think of, of Netflix's uh, recommendation engine and their algorithm for, for matching people to movies? Well, you know that's that's really interesting because um, let's let's stay in the DVD business, which is mostly where where he's been even now. And when you have a subscription model, you have an economic interest in people renting less movies mm. because it costs a lot: postage, turnaround mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. You know, new releases are depreciating fast. You know, all that kind of stuff. And so a lot of people don't realize this about his business model. But unlike my video stores, where the better movie matchmaking that I gave. Um, the more business I would do, the more successful I would be. In his case, um, before the streaming, let's say, it was exactly the opposite. And so, and so he was, it was important for him to look like he had really good recommendation systems. But it was important for him not necessarily to have good recommendation systems. And you could read complaints even today by large numbers of Netflix you know, customers that their, their, um, their recommendation systems aren't very good. But he had a good reason for that economically for let's say ten years. Um, uh, so he needed to look like he had a good a good system. Right, but he needed to not have one. I had read that early on. Uh, it was it was sort of like a bait, not a bait and switch. That's that's too too harsh a term. But the the recommendation engine was actually recommending movies to people based on what they had in inventory. Like you, if if, right. if a movie was that's totally rented out or sent out, then they'd recommend you something else and and tell you they were recommending because they think you would like it. That's right. And he went through at least two major lawsuits, class action lawsuits, for doing something called throttling, which meant that customers that ordered a lot of, a lot of new releases, he sent them very few movies, meaning he controlled who, what he would send to who, and, um, and yet he advertised he didn't do that. And that's where the class action suits came in. Let me ask you real but quick. He, but he, Sorry. Go ahead. Let me ask you real quick about uh, Amazon also, um, as someone that obviously competed with them, right, as they're starting to move from books into everything. Um, when you are uh, dealing with Jeff Bezos in the, in the 90s, did you have a sense then that he, his vision was to eventually move into everything? Yeah, and he, and he, even, he made no secret of it. And, of course, books was, a, was the best start because it was a very profitable business and it had a lot of selection. And then he did music, which was the next biggest thing at that time. And then he did videos. But he made no secret about the fact that the books was just the beginning. And um, I can tell you an interesting story. Um, when I met, the, the, I've had different meetings with Reed Hastings. And when I met with him, I think it was around 2005, right after Elephant. Um, he said that there was only about a 20% chance that 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 um, that that Bezos was was going to compete with him, and the reason was this was still part of the stock market crash or the dot com scene, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and that Bezos couldn't afford to have any money losing businesses, and to get into that business, it would take money, you know, before it became profitable. Didn't... And so he was pretty confident that, and that's why Bezos didn't get into it. Is that for a long timing time. wise? Yeah. 
Um, yeah, that's right. Timing wise, he couldn't afford it, you know, you know, to have another money losing business versus his, his book business, which was making money. So Netflix got that that sort of uh, window of opportunity there. <laughs> Exactly, because because had Amazon got into it earlier, you know, they were very powerful financially, brand wise, et cetera. You know, people that buy books also, you know, watch movies and so they had a lot of advantages. But he was very Reed was very confident and of course he was right, wisdom of hindsight. So uh final question. Um there seems to be a lot of uh nostalgia for uh physical movie rental stores. I I'm curious about how you feel about uh the the death of, of Maybe not even just uh, movie rental stores, but but physical retail in general. Well, um, you know, you know, very mixed. You know, there's a lot of progress that's really cool. Um, unfortunately, most video stores were like typical blockbusters, where they weren't really very good at movie matchmaking, so they weren't necessarily adding a lot of value. And but there were some video stores that were really good at it. And and the loss of those and that interaction where, you know, like my, in my stores, customers would come in and they, they'd be talking to neighbors and talking about movies. And it was a community thing. And they would also be able to interact with really knowledgeable experts, clerks that um, they could really help them. And so I think I think there's a real loss in all that. And there's even a loss of DNA in terms of, you know, getting a really creative feel, even though there's plenty of data about who likes what movies or whatever, there's very little data about who, who likes what movies and why. Because and if you don't know why they like the movie, the data is really limited in terms of its value. Because the, the, the Netflix model still is, is like, well, other people liked X, Y, and Z, so you should. That's right. Right. But, but that's very much of a blunt instrument. Um, and because people, especially in movies, and there's other areas too, where people's, you know, they're so complex that it's not like one person. We're like different people. Like I'm one, I am one kind of person when I'm in the mood for a comedy and I'm another kind of person when I'm in the mood for sci-fi and everybody's like that. And so what they do is very much of a blunt instrument. Uh, well, Stuart Scorman, thank you for coming on the show, remembering all those great stories for us. Um, I'm going to say again, uh, his book is fantastic. It's, it's on Amazon. Uh, definitely. I read it on, uh, on my Kindle. It's called confessions of a serial entrepreneur. Why I can't stop starting over. Um, you just have such a fascinating story. So thank you for, uh, sharing that with us. You're very welcome, Brian. If this is the first time you're listening to this podcast, please subscribe to us on your podcast app of choice. There's plenty more great internet history where that came from. And if you're a longtime listener, then you know what to do to help us out. Rate and review us on iTunes. Because iTunes gives credit to reviews and ratings, and the more great reviews we get, the more people will discover us. As always, there's more info on our website, www.internethistorypodcast.com. The show's Twitter handle is at nethistorypod, and my personal Twitter is at Brian MCC. Thanks for listening.